Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Streets Ahead, a new podcast dedicated to active travel, livable streets, and people-focused urban design. I'm Laura Laker. I'm Adam Tranter. And I'm Ned Bolting. And welcome to this, our sixth episode. Now, not often in the world of cycling and walking advocacy do we come across representatives of the so-called motor lobby. But today we have a senior figure with us, and I'd like to welcome Edmund King, who's president of the AA, which, if you don't know, stands for the Automobile Association. It was founded in 1905. Back then, patrolmen on bicycles used to salute to warn speeding drivers of speed traps. Now the organisation, perhaps more sensibly, focuses on vehicle insurance, driving lessons, breakdown cover, loans, motoring advice, roadmaps and other services. So Edmund cycles too and has supported pro-cycling campaigns and most recently thought that the government's 28.8 billion road building budget, which would really only benefit drivers, might need to be reviewed. So welcome Edmund. How are you doing during lockdown? Yeah, thanks very much, Laura. I've got three teenage kids. They're all at home. They're with us. Um, And it's been quite quality time with them. I bought Finbar a new bike because his bike got stolen. So we actually have a very good independent bike shop called Addiction. And um, I was actually quite surprised at first that they were open during the pandemic. I I wasn't aware. So uh, uh, the manager, Neil at Addiction, sourced me a rather good bike for Finbar. And the only downside is he now beats me because he's much quicker than (laughs) me when when we're off road. So that's been a bit, it's been a bit hard for me to take. But then when I remind myself that I'm 40 years older than him, then perhaps puts into context. So no, as a, as a family, we've been getting by. We've been doing our exercise. We had an extension on the house. So we've got a bit of a home gym. So the kids work out all the time. They, they get out the fresh air. And it is one of the things that I've noticed is so good that when you go out and you see families with 
four and five-year-old kids on bikes, on the roads, which I've got to say, I have not seen around where I live um, before. And I've been cycling for many, many years. So, you know, if there's one of one benefit that perhaps comes out of this absolutely terrible time is that it is getting a new generation used to other forms of, of travel, particularly um, on cycles and getting them on, on roads and getting them used to it. And if some of that can, can endure, it will be a great thing. We did a survey of 20,000 AA members and actually 36% said after lockdown, they will cycle, walk and run more than they did before. Now, that remains to be seen if that's a pipe dream. But I do think some of it, some of it will rub off and that will be a positive thing. Edmund, I just wanted to uh, say that sometimes um, kind of quite dramatic things that are outside of your control and arrive unexpectedly um, force behavioural change, don't they? And open avenues that you can explore that you previously weren't aware of. And um, two years ago, my uh, crappy Renault Scenic um, broke down in the pouring rain on the Autobahn in Germany. And um, I uh, fumbled around for what I thought was my AA membership card um, with all the helplines and everything. And I uh, eventually got through to one of your very good operators on the phone who then told me that my European coverage had lapsed because I hadn't been paying it for ages. Um, and I, <laughs> I was about to embark on a prolonged period of just sitting on the hard shoulder, someone near Dusseldorf in the pouring rain, wondering what was going to happen next. When you're, I have to say, this isn't a setup or anything. When your very kind operator said, but you have been an AA member for a long time, so I'm sure we can help you. And sure enough, an hour and a half later, my car was towed off the autobahn um, and straight to a scrapyard. Oh. And I, 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 once I'd once I'd completed all the um, paperwork, and these German technicians had looked down their nose at this awful French car, I and I had to pay for them to take it off my hands. I continued the journey by train, and uh, I have uh, I decided from that moment on I would never own another car. <laughs> <laughs> but, but your organization played an unwitting part in that. Um, mm. But what I meant to say, a, a long-winded way of saying um, uh, that for me, it works. I live in London. It's a doable thing, but it was nothing short of life-changing in lots of ways. It really has um, improved the quality of my life. And in a microcosm, that's the experience that I think we'd all like to see filter out across the country. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I had a breakdown on an autobahn probably about 40 years ago in my little MGB. And even back then, luckily, I was a member of the AA. And luckily, I did have European cover. So the ADAC res rescued me. But I've got to say, I did like that MGB. It's a, it's a lovely car to drive, you know, and driving to the Swiss Alps and everything. You know, it was a real experience that I'll remember for life. And I still do like to drive a soft top car as well as to, to cycle. So I don't necessarily think it needs to be either or, but you can still change your lifestyle. So many more people have, have been walking. And again, with with our members, and this, this is possibly as significant as, as the cycling bit, 22% of our members say that after lockdown, they will actually drive less and they walk, because they realized you can walk to the local shop. It's not an inconvenience. Often, often it can be quicker because you don't have to park. You know, you go there, you get your stuff. So, yeah, I, I do think we should 
change the way we live. There, there is no doubt in so many ways, just the noise, noise levels alone, you know, you can hear the birds sing. It, it is so heartening. And even with vehicles, I wonder whether it, it will change people's choice and might actually help the acceleration towards electric vehicles, which obviously are quieter. But because people have got used to the quiet, so it, it might help in, in, in those ways. Um, but, you know, we have to make it work. And I, and I think this, this is why I support what you guys have been saying about actually changing road space and giving at least more temporary space for cycling, for walking, for, for jogging to help us out of this mess. To, to disencourage people to get into their cars. You know, the last thing we want is people driving their cars into London, but we know that they're not going to be using the tube. They're, very few are going to be using the buses. The, the trains will be restricted. So, again, we have to be practical here. And this is where sometimes the debate, I, I must say, annoys me because it is sometimes seen too black and white as them and us. And if you're a cyclist, you can't drive. And if you drive, you must hate cyclists, you know, which frankly is nonsense. You know, I walk, I cycle, and and yes, I drive, and you know, I haven't been driving much recently, and my car's out there, well, not plugged in at the moment because it's fully charged and still got a, you know, it, it's a hybrid, plug-in hybrid, so it's still got a full tank of petrol and charge, but I've hardly used it. Um, but it doesn't have to be either or. It, it, it's using the right transport choice for the for the right journey, and all have their their benefits. You know, the car has enhanced mobility for for many many people, and yes, it's brought problems as well with with crashes, with pollution. But I still say it's not either or, and. You know, sometimes on Twitter, when I'm called a mass murderer, I'm accused of genocide, I've got blood on my hands, you know, is, is that really the way to hold a debate on these issues? I don't think so. Yes. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's possibly, um, possibly excessive. And I, I would, you know, I, I would uh, agree in some respects related to the Twitter part of it, especially um, because the, uh, the conversation can be so either or and so polarized. And what I've started to try and say really clearly at the moment is you need to use the right tool for the job. Uh, I, I don't live in a city. I live in the countryside. Um, and I've been going to my local shops, uh, and when I've been taking my kids to school, um, and doing all of those things, I've been making sure I've been doing it on my bike. And, you know, that's not a hard argument for me to kind of accept, but I, it comes very naturally to me. There was a time in my life last, last episode, Laura, episode four that Laura mentioned that she used to drive half a mile to university. Um, I used to drive half a mile to, uh, to where I worked. Um, and it's like, I cannot, you know, I cannot imagine that I'm the, the same, you know, it's the same person that, that did that. Yeah. That's a different life, but I guess the right tool for the job is, is important really, because there are journeys that I cannot make by bike and there is a very poor bus service near where I live, et cetera. And I think, you know, outside of cities, that is the case. But the thing that I'm coming to is, 68% of journeys are under five miles in the UK, a quarter are under one mile, the kind of journeys that I unwittingly take, took without realizing the consequences of them before. 
how do we have a conversation, I guess, nationally and with, with your members and with people who drive cars because it's part of their habit to realize that actually no one's saying give up your car, but people might be saying, can you not drive it just down the road to the shops? Because that is having a negative effect. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I totally and utterly agree with that. And I don't see that as any kind of a dilemma. There, there was a TV ad many years ago for one of the major German car manufacturers. And it actually showed this smartly dressed guy coming out of his house, walking past his state-of-the-art German car, whatever it was. And the catch line was, you know, the sensible guy sometimes leaves his car at home. And it was like, it's a sensible choice because he could walk to his office or walk to his shops. And so, yeah, I, I agree. We need to get that thinking through. And that's where I do think that this pandemic may actually help because people have got used to leaving their cars at home. And I can tell you they've got used to it because more than 40% of our call-outs at the moment are for flat batteries. You know, it, it's quite ironic that yesterday, in terms of breakdowns, even though traffic is at about half of what it was and it has crept up over the last two weeks, but even though traffic is about half, our breakdowns yesterday were only 16% below normal, which, you know, which is astonishing because people aren't doing the miles but if you leave your car for three weeks at home and it's maybe a bit of an older car, your battery will go flat. So our guys, ironically, are, are still busy out there. People aren't, aren't using their cars for, for those journeys. And I, I think that's good. And, you know, hopefully some, some of that will stick. And I, I think it has to be a combination of things. It has to be a combination of influencing people, not necessarily telling people, not necessarily pointing the finger at, at, at people because people react in the wrong way to that. So I think with some of these things, you've got to be a little more subtle in, in your approach. And certainly at the AA, that is what I have tried to do over the, over the years. You know, and I, I've been talking about cycling and, and walking um, for, for many, many years now because I, I genuinely ag agree with it. But, but Yes, you can, you can in towns and cities, you can have parking controls, you can have congestion charging, you can have low emission zones. And, you know, those have probably all got a role to play, but ultimately it's down to the individual. And if you can get the individual to think, what is the sensible solution? It's rather like looking at the school run. When we looked at the school run a few years ago, the most effective thing, rather nagging drivers don't take part in the school run, the most effective thing was getting the kids at the local schools to come up with their green transport plans. And that had much more of an influence, like initiating things like a walking bus. But getting the kids to do it and the kids telling their parents, rather than me or you, trying to tell the parents you shouldn't use their car. So sometimes I think we've just got to be a bit cleverer about um, how we communicate, how we get the messages across. and. Currently, via the AA Charitable Trust, we're, we're doing some work at the moment that we've just started, so it's very early stage, but looking at young drivers on rural roads, which is a particular problem. 
But as part of that campaign, I'm also using one of the top advertising companies in, in the country, not, not paying commercial rates, who we glad to hear because our trust couldn't afford it. But in terms of targeting the messaging to those individuals, and you know, one, one of the things up front is you can't point your finger at, at young drivers. It will just turn them off. They won't listen. So you've got to find subtler ways. And I, I think that's the same. I don't think communication has been great across the board on many of these messages. I think it could be much better. And um, of course, encouraging people to switch modes of transport is is helpful, but it's not the only piece of the puzzle, is it? And um, obviously, if people are going to walk and cycle more, they need the roads to be inviting for them. And at some point, presumably, traffic levels are going to go up again. So do you think that the that the kind of pop-up bike lanes we're seeing around the place are a good idea? Do you think we need more of them? Do you think we need more neighbourhood filtering? Yeah. I mean, in terms of road in- investment, I, I do think you have to differentiate between kind of interurban and, and urban. So, so, for example, I have forced the government to spend more money on motorways because for the last two years, I've led a campaign against smart motorways because we were incredibly concerned that moving an emergency refuge area from every 400 or 500 meters to every 2,500 meters or mile and a half is actually a death trap. And you know, we we campaigned very vigorously for a couple of years, and we're actually quite pleased that eventually we've got government to realise that those emergency laybys on smart motorways should be at least every three quarters of a mile. So if someone's breaking down, at least if they can see a layby, they will get there. Now I understand that will cost the Highways England, and I'm not their their best friend at the moment because it will cost them millions of pounds more. But they got it wrong in the first place. So I have no qualms about putting pressure on them to spend more on motorways because they cut corners or previous highways agency cut corners because they knew the original M42 worked with spacing of 400 meters, but as a cost cutting exercise, that, that was changed. So that will cost money. And I have no qualms about that money being spent because it will make those roads, roads safer. So but you'd probably get in trouble if you cycled on the motorway, wouldn't you? No, indeed, indeed. <laughs> but but the point I'm making, you still need some road investment, but it has to be targeted for the right reasons. Now, that is one for safety. In towns and cities, currently, I, I do feel a lot can be done. And, you know, look at look at Paris, look at, you know, which is probably the last place that, that you know, it's been, it's been more pro-car historically than most, most other cities, maybe apart from LA. But, you know, Paris, they, they're giving up more space to walking and cycling. They're making it semi, semi-permanent. We know in London, plans are, are being developed. And that is a reaction to what's going on. But um, as I think Ned said before, that, that sometimes a change that is imposed on you for other reasons can have benefits. So, I, I, I do feel, particularly in our metropolitan um, cities, that give, giving more space to walking, to cycling, you know, things like e-scooters, if we could get the regulations right there and if we could get some safety introduced in terms of tyre size and braking, you know, that, 
that could transform our streets if it's done in the right way. So we need some radical thinking. We need some quick thinking. One of the things, again, that this pandemic, certainly for my own organization, the AA, our decision-making has been brilliant. You know, we've cut out all those layers, that procrastination. You know, we, we got things done. When we decided we wanted to offer free breakdown to one and a half million people of the NHS, you know, we got that done in days. We got the website up. We got the dedicated phone line. We got the patrols briefed. We, we did that all in days. And, and it's been successful. We've been rescuing more than 100 NHS staff every day since, since um, the 2nd of April. But it's one example where, where you can cut that red tape. You can get things done. And to me, as I'm sure to you guys, one of, one of the frustrations is it, it takes so long in transport to change anything. And I don't think it needs to take that long. You know, if, if, if you've got a clear objective, if you've got like-minded people dedicated to get things done, they can get done. So, mm. you know, let, let's hope that will be another learning. So you think it's a good idea to sort of cut the red tape in this case and, and try things on streets and make oh, space walking inside? Absolutely. Thing. You know, it's kind of a no-brainer. People aren't going to be able to use buses and tubes in the way that they did before or trains. So, and yet our cities need to keep going. You know, we need to keep key workers and getting more people back back to work when we can. And if we can't transport those people, if they can't get a, get around, well then you know, we, we, we're back to, 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 to the beginning again. So yeah, I, I think, I think politicians have to be brave and, and I think the public will buy it at the moment because they know there is a major problem. Hmm. And you, you talked earlier about, um, the sort of removing this us versus them debate. And, um, you mentioned a poll, you did another poll, um, was quoted in a number of papers on perceptions of dangerous driving, which is quite interesting. Um, I think the question might have been, are drivers and cyclists behaving better or worse? I'm not sure. But anyway, um, the response, response was that 25% of drivers um, said that drivers and cyclists' behavior had worsened. And um, you were quoted as saying about drivers needing to follow the highway code and not to speed but you said equally, it isn't a time for cyclists to pretend they're in the Tour de France and ignore many roundabouts and stop signs. I wonder what you meant. Well, is it, isn't it quite obvious that, you know, it should be everyone abides by the rules of the road rather than, you know, just one category and not the other. So, you know, it's, it's a general thing, whether you're a cyclist, pedestrian, motorist, you know, abide by the rules of the, of, of the road. You know, and what I said was less traffic doesn't mean that drivers should start drag racing at traffic lights or dangerous overtaking or ignoring the speed limits, which we have been seeing on some roads, some really excessive um, speeds. I mean, I also said that drivers should leave a wide... Can I just dive in here, Edmund, and just just pick up on... Oh, it's just because it's close to my heart because I'm the Tour de France commentator. <laughs> the, the Tour de France references and the... Um, who do you think you are, Bradley Wiggins, kind of uh, attitude that sometimes falls on the heads of the cycling community, um, do get our hackles up. Um, I think there'll be lots of people listening to this podcast who will have, when Laura read those quotes out, how will have rolled their eyes slightly at them 
Um, and I, I completely, I, no, can I just finish my point? I yeah, sure. completely accept Edmund that you are a cyclist and it's great to hear how, how you've embraced it. And you are as an organization clearly going a lot further in terms of the, your very presence on this podcast of reaching out to cross that divide. And yet when I hear, when I hear that, um, one, it, it contradicts my experience. And this, this is purely anecdotal, isn't it? Because if you've seen lots of people shooting mini roundabouts and, and stop signs on their bikes, then fair enough. I can't, I can't deny that that's what you've seen. It's not my experience, but it is kind of anecdotal. Um, whereas there is empirical evidence that has come from the police that people driving tons of machinery are speeding uh, to an extent that didn't exist before lockdown. And that is fatally dangerous. So you did use the word equally, and I'm not sure it is an an equivalent kind of misbehaviour. Yeah, it, it was a survey of nineteen thousand seven hundred drivers, and equally twenty five percent said drivers are worse, and equally twenty five percent cyclists are worse. Now, that is their uh, perceptions, but you know every driver is not a boy racer, and so it applies both both ways. And I think you know. We, we all need to be sensible when, when we're on the road, whether you're a cyclist or, or a driver. And all I'm saying is you've, you've got to look at it both ways. And some cyclists, you know, don't abide by the rules, rules of the road. Some motorists don't. So I think that's all it's saying. I wouldn't build more than that into it. My, my background um, is in media and uh, working in PR and, and things like that. And um, I, I, I spend my life reading probably uh, depresses me quite a lot, but reading uh, about, uh, you know, articles of so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that. And you're, you're very, uh, you're very media savvy. Um, You, you come on to lots of uh, talks and, and you're on the BBC 10 o'clock news last night. And I guess I looked at a local Facebook page before coming onto this podcast and there was two, two upside down cars into a tree and the the headline is that you obviously it's not your headline, so it's nothing to do with you. But it's um, you know drivers lucky to walk away from you know scene of scene of crash. And the police comment is you know don't drive during lockdown. Uh, don't you know paraphrasing, but don't put your car upside down into a hedge in someone's driveway. And there's six comments on the Facebook posts. You know, there's just six comments with kind of this apathy towards road danger, which comes from, I guess, the majority of people driving and the normalizing of of driving because we all we all do it. There's a post underneath that says, "Here's here's eight things I find annoying about lockdown," and one of them's one of them's cycling on cyclists. Um, that's got over hundred comments, and I guess. Knowing what you know, given that you know how the media works, I just I wonder whether this kind of phrase that we all have to take equal responsibility, including vulnerable road users, is is potentially uh, unhelpful and exacerbates the, this kind of. Well, I saw a cyclist do this thing once, so therefore I will change my perception around cyclists. Whereas you quite rightly say we shouldn't tarnish when I get cut up by a black cab driver it would be silly of me to say all black cab drivers do this. And yes, when there, when there is like uh, minorities, sometimes people start to think like that. I just wonder if these kind of comments really, really help. Got to put these things into context. My comment was quote of the day that was in all the papers was less traffic doesn't mean that drivers should start drag racing at traffic lights. So, you know, 
the message that got out in the bulk of the media was saying to drivers, don't be idiots, slow down. So, you know, but it, but again, it, it shouldn't be them and us. It shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be talking about boy racers or cyclists jumping lights. It's, it's like, let's get on together. Let's, let's all act sensibly on, on the roads. And that, that is the only message I try and get out there. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't point fingers at cyclists, but, and, you know, and our poll, to be fair, and I did point this out, it was a poll of drivers rather than a representative poll of, uh, the, the general, general public, you know, and therefore it's not necessarily, uh, representative of the general public, but it probably is representative of drivers. So it has, has to be put in, into that. In, in, into into that way, but I do think I still think that cyclists could sometimes do themselves a favour by perhaps not always alienating drivers. Um, you know, and I was discussing with some colleagues before. I go out on my bike a lot, and actually, I don't sorry, get sorry, I Edmund. Are you sorry, Edmund? Sorry. Are you suggesting that cyclists always alienate drivers? No, of course not. Because that's what you, that's what no, you said. No, don't be silly. Of course I'm not. They could do I'm, themselves a favour by not no, always no, alienating like, drivers. Yeah. Look at look at Twitter. Look at some of the arguments. Look at some of the comments. They are so polarised. And what what I'm saying is that polarisation does doesn't always generate good good debate. You know, it's the kind of them and us. Okay. That, that, that's what I was trying to say. And on both sides, you know. Look at look at the extreme motorists and what they say. They attack me. I get shot from both sides quite often. Sure, sure. Because I'm I'm not being pro motorist enough, etc. So can I can I move the can I move? I've got very limited time, I'm afraid. Can I move just from from my point of view and ask one last question before I have to bow out, which moves us on from this little rabbit hole we've gone down, perhaps, and uh, we've probably beaten you up enough, Edmund. So. So um, thanks for that. Um, but no, it's actually a very practical and detailed question. I've just um, completed a little comments thing on Lewisham Council's website, uh, asking for suggestions about how you might increase space for social distancing. And one of the suggestions I made was that on my road, you see that window out there, my London road there, yep. on both sides of this quite reasonably sized London road, cars bump up on the pavement and are allowed half the pavement. Um, if you put all the cars back in the road, which I think is probably where they should belong, you'd probably have to make the road one way. Is that a price worth paying in your mind? Put cars back on the road and off the pavement? Um, yeah, I, th I think it depends on, on the situation, you know, is the road wide enough to get emergency vehicles through whatever is the, how, how wide is the pavement? I don't know. It, it depends on the situation. It depends how wide the pavement is, how wide the road is. We do know on some roads that, that, you know, people park fully on the road. It, it restricts emergency services. So I think it does depend. The, the problem is it, the pavement that is left to pedestrians is not wide enough for social distancing quite clearly because oh, it forces right. it forces pedestrians onto the road to avoid other pedestrians and they have to go round parked cars. Um, and like I say, I mean, just take my word for this. I might be wrong. I suspect I'm right, but it, you'd have to make it one way. 
you could still do right. it, but it would become a one-way street rather than two-way street. Yeah. Would that be a price you'd? Would that be something you would accept as a as a reasonable yeah, I mean, measure? Very difficult without knowing the circumstances. You know, could. But I'm just of- describing. I'm describing a, yeah. a no, potential set of circumstances. Would yeah. you allow? In your mind, for a road that was two-way to become one-way, perhaps would that be? Does that strike you as reasonable? Yeah, I mean, it's happened before. There've been many cases in in London where that has happened, and as as long as it's well planned, it's like all things. If it's well planned, yes, it it can work. I don't know Glasshouse Street in London. There've been various others that have changed, and initially, yes, you'll get complaints from cabbies or others. But eventually, the traffic finds its it, its level, finds a way around. But yeah, I think in all our towns and cities, we should be looking at making them more accessible. Um, and you know, work has been done, but probably not enough. Um, I've got uh, I've got twin twin boys, and they're they're six now. But when when they were younger, we we had them in a, one of those double side by side push chairs, and um, that was that was um, that was what what uh, what first led me to start thinking about um, the issue of pavement parking. And, and in London, obviously, pavement parking, or well, not obviously, but London uh, has uh, laws against pavement parking in in many areas. Um, except for some boroughs, including where where Laura lives, um, but I where I am, it's it's you know there's the wild west out there. It's it's really free to to park where you like, and I really don't actually think that any many people parking on the pavement really realise what 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 the effect is to the outside uh, world or the other people. They don't see anyone come past on a wheelchair, etc. And I guess that lends me to to two questions. One's quite straightforward in terms of building up what Ned was saying. There are obviously proposals for pavement parking to be banned in in, in England and, and Scotland have come forward and said that they'll uh, go ahead with that and England it's kind of been kicked down the road. I'm really interested to to know, obviously ideologically, it makes sense that we don't have our pavements blocked, but there are, um, you know, there, of course there, there are uh, considerations, but that is kind of a binary thing that may or may not happen, which I, I would be interested to get your, your take on. And then secondly, how do we get, this is not all drivers. This is, this is how do we get humans to be more mindful of their actions? And for the, for the, for the, uh, interest of balance, I would say, you know, one parking over a drop curbs so as someone on a wheelchair can't get down. And two, someone mentioned to me the other day that they were going around a bend and a cyclist had stopped in the court off the corner to have a chat. And had left half his wheel in the road, which was causing, you know, a hazard, which I think I wouldn't have done personally. So how do you get people to think more about their environment and the impact of travel, I guess? Mm. Yeah, I'm sympathetic towards you with the twins in a pram. We used to have a Land Rover double buggy, which which um, was great off-road because it had proper tires, but on the pavement, it, it was terrible because it was really wide. And so, yeah, sympathy there. I mean, what we've said on pavement parking is that local authorities should should review all their roads, and you know, where possible, you shouldn't have pavement parking because people need access. Partially sighted people, uh, people with prams, shopping, wheelchair users, etc. Et, et um, but there, you know, there are some streets where if every car parks on the road, you can't get the dustbin lorry through or you can't so so we need need to look more more practically i am um, you know can cars park elsewhere i think 
the opportunity may come, ironically, with um, the increase in electric vehicles. And if you live in a town and city, you haven't got your own driveway, whatever, it will be impossible for everyone to charge on the street. So ironically, you might start to get hubs that are kind of off street. It might be you park in the supermarket at night or you park in the office building at night and that's where you charge your car. And that will take the problem away from the pavement. So that that could be something. And it's certainly some, something we, we've been looking at. But, but again, you know, I think people need to be more considerate of others. And wherever you park your vehicle, think about it. You know, are you blocking someone in? Are, are, are you uh, block, blocking access, etc.? Um, yeah, and I, I also think in our towns and cities, this is where there's been a lot of talk, but it still hasn't really taken off. Is you know, do you really need a car? Can you join a car club? Do you only need a car to go and see your parents twice a year? So what? Why do you need need a big car that's an estate car because you've got to get the prams in the back? But why do you need it all the time? But again, there's been lots and lots of talk about that, and it's it's been very slow to act to actually um, take off. There, there still is this kind of inherent car dependence for many people. You know, they, they feel having the car outside gives them that sense of security. If Johnny's ill, then we've got a car that we can take Johnny to the hospital. But, you know, you could argue that's what ambulances are for. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we have this big problem. And as, as uh, Adam said, my, my borough, Newham, the pavement parking here is is rife. There's a little narrow street that's there's probably, I don't know, maybe half a metre on the pavements on either side. If you're lucky, it's sometimes less. And then there's like a single track down the middle. But, you know, all of these areas like mine, you could solve the problem of um, of all this parking by simply reducing car ownership like you say cars are parked 95 percent of the time um it's funny because when you start to think about this you one thing i've realized writing about um active travel and trend and road transport for so many years is is that there's few things in the modern age that have been so successful as the motor car in in sort of capture, capturing the physical environment and so much of our towns and cities and just changing our lives beyond recognition, really, uh, in just a couple of generations. And I wonder what we can learn from the car industry in terms of making that change back to streets for people. To, to learn from the car industry? Yeah, in term, because they've, they've been so successful at you know, at sort of selling us these, um, this way of getting around and have transformed, you know, think of American cities and just how vast and sprawling they've become. And um, the motor car has been phenomenally successful. And as you said earlier, it's a tool that's useful in many circumstances, but certainly not all. And I'm wondering what we can learn but from it, but it how... But the- useful, isn't it? I think it was Steve yeah. Norris said, it's the only form of public transport transport that waits for you outside your home when you're late you know the bus doesn't wait for you the tube bicycle doesn't yeah, <laughs> bicycle awesome. wait too unless someone steals yeah. you <laughs> yeah. yeah but i think I, I don't know do you think we can learn something from from how successful the car's been because it's not the only tool is it i mean i i, I think we, we'd all agree that that cars are useful in some circumstances oh they're they're incredibly useful not not in some circumstances. I mean, in many circumstances, the, the the car can be incredibly useful in terms of mobility, 
being able to go and visit your parents, you know, taking your kids to sporting activities that you can only get to by car. You know, having two boys that have played football all over the country in many areas, you could not get there on a bike. You could not get there on a train. So yeah, you've got to, you've got to make a choice if if they want to follow that career and do that. You need a car to get get them there. You know, they're, they're, but of course, most most journeys are less than five miles, aren't they? So that's not necessarily a car trip. No, but many 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 of these journeys are many more. I can tell you than five miles. My Sundays were full of of these journeys, and the car is the only source. So the car the car. Is an incredibly useful invention, and and quite frankly, even with driverless cars, shared cars, I don't think the car's going to go away anytime soon. I think there will still be cars here twenty or thirty years, and even the. Yeah, I don't think any of us are saying that it will um, sort of go away. No. It's just you know the tool for the job, really, because cycles are also incredibly useful. But like, how do we reallocate? Um, you know, because obviously the car, cars are being done for too many journeys and you've kind of acknowledged that at the start, but you know, how do we start to sort of tip the, how can we sort of learn from the success of the car and, and help the bicycle be as successful? Well, yeah. Well, I think you probably know that much better than me. I mean, you, you know, no, but you do. No, but if you look at places like Holland and I know you guys have written about this and, you know, doesn't need me to tell you, but when the infrastructure has changed, when it makes it easier to cycle, when it when it makes segregation easier for younger cyclists to take it up at an age, as we've seen on the streets of Britain inadvertently now, you know, I've never seen as many three and four and five-year-old kids on the streets, and that's because they feel safe. Generally, they don't feel safe. In Holland, they would feel safe because they've got a wide, segregated cycleway, even in rural areas. When I, when I went on some of the football tours in Holland every summer with my sons, even in those rural areas and getting to those football pitches in the middle of nowhere, you actually had a cycle path coming from the town or city, which did surprise me at first. Um, there you go, so, you see football matches too. <laughs> no, but, yeah, when you've got the infrastructure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, yes. Uh, I mean, I do, I do genuinely, genuinely hope, and I really, you know, sincerely hear that, that, you know, the 36% of AA members who said they'll cycle, walk, and run more, I do genuinely hope that we can help them to stick to that. And when I say we can help them, it, it it is providing for them. It is finding roads where you don't need traffic 24 hours a day, where you can give more more space to, to cycle lanes where it's relevant. You know, in towns and cities, and I've been criticized for this, but there are some roads I would describe as roads for movement. It's to get the goods in. It's to get the buses out. It's to help the city run. And you will need that no matter what. But outside of those roads for movement, most of those other roads can be adapted to, to take away the priority for, for the motor vehicle, particularly in our towns and cities. And that's what hopefully, you know, town planners, local authorities, and I know some of them are, are currently look, looking at it now. So hopefully some of that can, can stick and, and make our cities more livable for everyone. Um, just just to kind of follow on from Laura and, and to, to to start to 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 wrap things up, I think um, one of the 
one of the kind of concepts I find interesting at the moment is I don't think the bicycle is like interesting or sexy enough. Uh, I wrote about this recently, but having a, you know, a politician stand on a lectern and, and announce the the future is the, is the bicycle is, is, um, you know, in some respects, uh, well, far-fetched as we know as, as advocates for it, but also, um, just not, just doesn't make good copy, just doesn't make good, good headlines. And, um, you know, there is a, there is an alternative obsession with, uh, I guess, Elon Musk and people like Elon Musk and the, you know, if he's not making the brand new electric car, that's going to, you know, save our world, he's sending stuff to, to, to space. And that does make, that does make really good, uh, really good headlines and really good copy. And I, I, I feel the same for, for, buses really as well i think buses are really effective ways of moving people um but they just ain't sexy uh no no one really wants to kind of get up there and talk about the bus um and that leads me to two things i think that i wanted to ask one is what do you think you know what what do you think of that do you think that people can't see through you know this this decades of marketing or do you think people actually will see the bicycle as a very um smart option and then secondly do you worry that will sleepwalk like we have potentially with overuse of cars into electric vehicles because they involve really not very much uh changed of our of our habits so we can kind of keep the same quality of life we expect now um and reduce the emissions at the tailpipe but of course all the things that you know about road safety and particulate matter uh, and space for people and all those things are are obviously of concern with electric vehicles um, so I know that you drive, you know, a semi-electric vehicle and you will advocate for your members to, to maybe switch in future. But I wonder if you think we might just sleepwalk into a slightly different electrified version of our world now. Yeah. On, on the first point about, um, promoting cyclists and making it more interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I do think there are some very good advocates out there, you know, people I've worked with like Chris Boardman and indeed, Eddie Merckx in, in Belgium. I, I was delighted, you know, when we developed our Think Mike sticker campaign in 2014, where you put the little sticker on the wing mirrors, which was an idea of one of our patrols. And we promoted that in the UK. And it was then taken up by the FIA in Brussels and promoted um, across 22 other countries, took it up. And Eddie Merckx made his own video around our Think Bikes campaign, which, which, you know, legend, legend. And my my um, colleague, uh, Tony Rich, the patroller who came up with the initial idea, Eddie Merckx had been a hero of his, as was Chris Boardman. And Chris Boardman signed a bike for him, and Eddie Merckx made a video. So, you know, there are people out there that can promote cycling and make it more exciting. And again, I, I, I guess it comes back to my earlier point about the, the messaging and can we be a bit smarter about it? And, you know, can we get some of the top advertising companies? You know, when you talk about the motor industry, there have been some pretty good ads in the past yeah. um, that, that, you know, possibly changed views of, of um uh, promoted car dependence. They're all driving in a in an empty city, aren't they? They're just it's the just the freedom, dream, the joy, yeah. the, the nature. Car yeah. equal freedom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so again, are there some messages that we can use from advert to be a bit clever about that? The the second point about 
electric vehicles and autonomous cars. And, you know, I, I think you make a valid point. You know, you could change all your car park in London and have them all electric cars or autonomous cars. And actually, the situation in terms of congestion could be a lot worse. And um, I think it was Robin Chase from Zipcars a, a while ago talked about with with autonomous cars a, a vision of heaven and a vision of hell and the vision of hell is that you have your autonomous car in santa monica you go to santa monica boulevard to the mall you get out of your autonomous car and because there's no parking your autonomous car does circles of santa monica boulevard for three hours until you need it which is great for you because your car's waiting for you <laughs> yeah but in terms of great for everyone else yeah it is a lot worse. So, yeah, I, I do kind of agree. We, we, we shouldn't support technology for technology's sake. We, we, we need to get the benefits from technology. And obviously, with electric vehicles in terms of vehicle emissions, uh, particularly at the tailpipe, that there are great benefits. But they, it can bring other problems. And this is why I, I developed, in fact, with my wife, an economic theory for the Wolfston Economics Prize looking at the future of transport and paying for road transport, we developed a concept called road miles, whereby everyone who has a car, you get 3,000 free road miles. If you live in a rural area, you get a third more. But after you've used that allowance, you, you pay for it. because. And one of the reasons is, one, if you shift to electric vehicles totally, the government won't get any money from fuel duty or vehicle excise duty, so the government needs the revenue. But the other reason is, as you were alluding to, Adam, is that if you have total electric vehicles and there's no restrictions on them and they're cheaper to run, they will still cause chronic congestion. So they will still need to be regulated in a way. So again, I think we need a bit more forward thinking there. I would like to just stand up for cycle, cycling as being sexy. I mean, what's not to like about <laughs> muscly, suntanned limbs, great legs, riding through the traffic, wind, through your hair. wind in your hair, having a great time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't think that was me saying that. There was Adam saying no, no, that. No, I, I think I, it was I Adam. Love... I, in fact, I know it was Adam. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 I think it's great. Um, I just, I look at it through a, through a lens of, uh, of, you know, what, what man in the street might, might think or might say and, and what that, you know, how we might but get to that position. I don't know. So. For some people, my, my first cycle, right. And the absolute true story, I think I was, um, five or six years old, lived in Norwich and I lived next door, but one at the time to Colin Chapman, who's the legendary founder of Lotus cars. And he lived close to us while he was having his mansion at Hethel built. Um, but they were selling a bike, and it was a little rally bike. So um, my mum bought the bike off Colin Chapman. It was his daughter's bike. So it was actually it was a rally girl's bike. But, th but because it came from Lotus, I painted it matte black. And at the age of six, my first bike, I called it a Lotus bike because at the time it was Lotus, JPS, John Player, special, black cars. So my first bike came from a motoring connection, but I had it, had it as a bike. And that bike to me was the most amazing three-gear rally bike yeah. that, that you could ever have. So 
Yes, they can be excited. My 19-year-old son, who I've just bought this bike for, it is a great bike. Bikes have got so much lighter. So yeah, they 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 are sexy. I I I, I could do with a new bike, but um, I'm I'm resisting because my old one still does everything I need it to do. <laughs> a lot of people buying new bikes at the moment. Actually, my first bike uh, was a Peugeot. Weirdly. Yeah, a shopping bike. My dad was a big motoring enthusiast, actually. And just before we spoke, I'm going to do a little show and tell. Um, I remember that I have this international driving permit from the AA from 1979, which apparently you used to need to drive in Europe. Yes. Well, <laughs> I had a big fight with government last year over that because of pre-Brexit and the fear that so many people might need international driving permits, they actually removed the right from the AA to issue driving permits. So I had a battle with Chris Grayling on that. And unfortunately, that's a battle I lost. So the AA is no longer allowed to issue permits. There are only certain post offices. So there's no postal service. So yeah, it was a bad move. But maybe when Brexit is settled, we we might try and reclaim the right to issue international driving permits. There we go. Thanks, Edmund. So you've been listening to Streets Ahead. Thanks to our guest, Edmund King, and thank you for listening. Let us know what you think. We're at Pod Streets Ahead. If you know other people who like this podcast, then please do share it with them. It really helps. Finally, wherever you're listening, please do rate and review the podcast. It means more people find us. Until next time. 